0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. One of the first fights that me and Kyra got in, uh, after being married, we were headed on our way to Florida to a vacation. And uh, it was late, and I pulled the car over, because we were halfway there, to stop in a motel. And yes, I said motel, that wasn't an H. (laughs) For you guys that didn't take notice of that, when I was that young, I wasn't thinking about those sorts of things. There's a big difference between the M and the H of an hotel. (laughs) Husbands, this is a classroom right now. There's a big difference when you're pulling your car over with your wife, you just, you know, gotten married, you're setting the tone here, and you pull over to the M and not the H. There's one of those letters you want, and I did not pick the right one. And so I came back, and she's in literal tears. I left the car. Everything was great. I came back. It was not great. It was not okay. And I want to let you know as your pastor that from there, I was really humble about it and totally accepted the blame and was like ready to learn and ready to love, except I did none of those things. This is the truth. And so it was... How am I supposed to read your mind? I mean, what am I, a mind reader? Am I supposed to just know what you're saying and thinking? You know? We signed up. We're supposed to be on an adventure. I thought we were doing mission trips together. How are we supposed to stay here? You know, these things. Yada, 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 yada. Sometimes you can win arguments and still lose them. Amen? <laughs> uh, the reason why our talks are moments of intense fellowship go from talking to arguing. The reason why the voices get louder and longer, and the reason why the conversation goes from what happened to what always happens, or what you never do, is because court's in session. And we've brought lawyers and attorneys and evidence and expert witnesses from outside the marriage or the relationship to vindicate ourselves, to justify ourselves, in the court that doesn't exist in that fight. And the reason why we care so much and why the tensions are so high over the popcorn kernels in the seats or the dinner getting burned or the money that somebody spent is because what's really on the line is not what is right and wrong, but who is right and wrong. Who is innocent and who is guilty? The reason why we need the last word, the reason why we are giving a speech in front of the public opinion that doesn't exist is because it's not about what is right and wrong, it is about who is innocent and who is guilty in that conversation. And even more than that, the stakes are not just who is innocent, who is guilty before one another. I think that the truth of the matter is the reason why we fight and argue and conversations turn into arguments is because it's who is right and wrong, not just between you and I, but between me and God. Like the reason why I'm fighting with Kyra is because when my family went on vacations, we stayed in motels. And I'm embarrassed of that. And maybe I wasn't raised the right way. Maybe I'm not a leader. Maybe I hurt people and don't help people. Maybe all the things that everyone has ever said about me is true. Maybe I'm a failure. Maybe I'm not going to lead well. And so the reason why we're fighting over traffic lights and small things like Bill's, is because it's not really about what's right and wrong, it's about who is right and wrong, who is guilty, and I need to prove their guilt so I can protect my innocence at all costs. So, if you've been following Paul here in this last couple chapters, he's been making a deliberate argument from chapter one to chapter two and chapter three, and the first thing that Paul does when he comes out of the gate is he challenges the innocence of humanity. And uh, he makes this claim that anyone that is born on this earth, including Greenville Memorial Hospital downstairs, is born not only to guilt, but in the trappings of sin. And then he turns the page to his both Jewish and Gentile audience, and he makes the claim that that sin is not only for the ungodly people, but for God's people themselves, that they are also guilty and trapped in sin, that no one is innocent. And so he goes from the innocence of man to attack that to attacking the hypocrisy of man, the ability for people to uh, create an image of themselves that projects life and innocence but has guilt and hidden away in the heart. And then he moves into that last little section, this little soft spot, this soft tissue of, of the covenantal people of God. And he begins to speak about God's righteousness. And you can sense the defensiveness that's gonna come up out of God's people, as he reads as he writes in chapter three. And basically, as I read, this is essentially what is sensitive to the Jews about this particular letter as they would be reading it. Because in saying that a Jewish person is unrighteous, what Paul is also inferring is that, at least in their minds, God's not righteous. In their minds, have you ever met somebody that when you're arguing with them, they're really just arguing with God? You ever met somebody that God's always on their side, right? In their mind, if Paul is saying that Jews are unrighteous, it must mean God is unrighteous because the righteousness of God is built on two important pillars and that is that God is always faithful and that God is always fair. If God is not faithful, but he's fair, he's not righteous. And if God is faithful, but he's not just, if he's not fair, he's unrighteous. And so if God's people who have God's promise and his commands are not righteous, the deduction is that God must not be righteous. That's what he's saying, right? This is, this is where the argument goes. And so he, he's, he, he's delicate, he's diplomatic in this. He's a pastor, not a professor. we will get into that more in this letter in the rest of this chapter. But this is what he says. He says, listen, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, rhetorically speaking, courts in session, Or what value is there in the circumcision? Much in every way. God's faithfulness is still secure. Everything that God said to Abraham is still gonna happen and is happening. And God's justice is still at hand. He's not just allowing good to be treated as evil and evil to be treated as good. He's still just. He is still faithful and he's still fair. Much in every way, the covenant is still alive. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? What if God's people were unfaithful to a faithful God? Does that make God unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No. The unfaithfulness of people will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Let God be true and everybody else a liar. As it's written, you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. He goes on, verse five, but what if, What if the unrighteousness of God, or excuse me, what if our unrighteousness, rather the unrighteousness of people brings out God's righteousness more clearly? What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, he says. Certainly not. If it were so, how could God judge the world? And someone might argue, if if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderous people claim, That we say, let us do evil that good might result. No, their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we've already made the charge. This is true. Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. And so what Paul is essentially restating that Jesus has already said is that Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That Jesus does not... Nullify the covenant and command of God through Abraham, he fulfills it. The the, the covenant and the command pointed to him in the way that he was always going to fulfill it and reveal it to be true. God's not changing the program, he's arriving it. He's fulfilling it, he's realizing it. And so the argument that he's going to make later on in chapter four, but we need the runway for it in chapter three, is that there's always been, anytime you open up the Bible in the Old Testament. A hidden righteousness, a hidden righteousness. Like you're supposed to read the Bible and go, I'm pretty sure that Abraham's a loser, right? Like I'm pretty sure that him selling his wife into the harem of Egypt as his day one of being a Christian is probably not great. Like I'm gonna assume that's a sin, And I'm going to go backwards, and I'm going to assume, even before the covenant was given, but as it was sort of given to Noah before he knew it, that when he got in his tent and went to Vegas and drunk himself stupid, that was not a good thing. That was not righteous, and that was not faithful. Yet God treats him righteous. Hmm. Hidden. David sinned with Bathsheba, and Solomon was born, and he was still treated righteous. But yet he was so unrighteous in that, in that sin. There was a hidden righteousness that always begged the question: How could a faithful and just God be so right to people that are so unright? He's saying, "Look, the gospel didn't bring up this dilemma. It's always been there. It's always been there. And there's been a hidden righteousness. And what we have in Christ and the cross is a revealed righteousness. In other words, the sins that these people were committing over and over again in the Old Testament were not being pardoned. They were being paid for. The language will be atoned for. They'll be justified." And so the righteousness that was in the Old Testament is not being abolished, it's being fulfilled in Jesus, and that's the righteousness that comes to us today. And so the difference between a good friend and a great friend is a good friend will build you up. You got a friend in your life that can build you up when you're down, you got a good friend indeed. But there's something called a great friend. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's not just building you up, In the best of ways, you have a friend that knows how to break you down the right way so that they can build you back up again in Christ. I think that many of us would be blessed to have a good friend, but Paul is a great friend to us in the sense that he is working and crafting the argument that we will never make in any of our fights, and that is that all of us in all of our fights in some way or another are wrong. We're wrong. We do hurt people. We do think selfishly. We do have false motives. We do twist the truth. We do lust after people in our eyes, in our hearts. We're wrong. And the beauty of that alcoholic anonymous person, when they come to the meeting and they finally come to that closure and accept wrongness, that is the doorway to find God's righteousness. Because the only way that God can be righteous to an unrighteous people is to justify the unjust. In other words, the only way that God can deal righteously with unrighteous people is he has to give his righteousness to us. And it's not until we can admit and understand our wrongness that we can find his rightness for the first time. And so he has worked for three chapters and knows all the slander and mean mugging and fussing that he's gonna get back from his church based on what he's talking about. But he's not a good friend, he's a great friend. And he's willing to break them down to build them up in Christ. It's a good moment to get to the end of chapter two, to get into chapter three. And so this is the little poem that he gives and he, he collects it all up. Like if you were asleep over these last couple of weeks, this is basically what he's concluding. And I just read it, verse nine. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? First he says he does, right? Yeah, we do have an advantage. We had the promise of God. We delivered Jesus through our line. We had the covenant of God. We had manna in the desert. We were very blessed. So do we have an advantage when it comes to the covenant law? Absolutely. Those were great things. Here's what we don't have an advantage in. Righteousness. Nobody in that covenant is righteous. you got a righteous God, but these are not righteous people. And God is giving and sharing his righteousness, but nobody's earning it. And there's there's a question that needs to be answered. How can that get fulfilled without being abolished? How can God still be righteous and deal with unrighteous people? There is no one righteous, says Paul. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God and all have turned away. They have altogether become worthless and there's nobody that does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law rather through the law that makes us conscious of sin let's so ask a little multiple choice question try to get philosophical with you today but it it matters it'll take us someplace If you saw a multiple choice question and the question was, what is sin? What is sin? And there were three answers on the paper. Which one would you pick? Is sin, A, something we do? Is sin something we do? Is sin, B, something we have, or is it something we're under? Is sin something we do, something we have, or something we are under? I used to teach a little AP class, and between the honors and the AP, it would be the same test, but I would always put all of the above underneath it just to make the test a little bit squirrelier. And of course, the answer to this question is, yes, sin is all those things. In fact, the first mention of sin in the Bible is Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, in the episode of Cain and Abel, the Lord says to Cain, hey, Cain, how come I see your face like crumpled up? Like, why are you so ticked, dude? Why is your face so downcast? Is it because you, is it not because if you do what is right, you will be accepted? Don't you know that? If you do what is right, you will be accepted. But I don't see rightness on your face. I see something else. And then he says this, but if you do, if you do not do what is right, and then he talks about sin for the first time, if you do not do what is right, if there is not righteousness in you, then sin, listen, Is like that Chinese Kung Fu movie from the 90s. It's a crouching tiger and a hidden dragon. It's a thing. So wait a minute, is it an action or is it a thing? Like, is it something that I do or is it something that gets inside of me? Like a little critter, like an animal that can knock on the door. It's personified, right? Is sin a thing or is it a condition? Is it something that we have? It's crouching the door. And listen, not only does it want to get inside of you, it wants to get up over you. It wants to rule you. If you've ever read Genesis 4, you had to answer yourself the question, or your kids the question, who won the battle between sin and righteousness, sin or Cain? The answer is sin. Cain did not win, and neither did his children, or his children's children's children. He built an entire city of it. In fact, Babel, which still, in the spiritual age today, exists because of sin. Man never wins against sin. Sin always wins against God. In other words, sin always comes to us like it's a mistress, but it wants to be a master. I knew a girl one time, and she was 15 years old, and she got a job over the summer to work at a car dealership, and a man that was probably twice her age, 30 years old, came up to her and said, gosh, you're a pretty little girl. This is in the 50s, of course, and something that you couldn't say these days. That day, the guy would have got cuffed up and held out. Said, you're a pretty little girl. How many of you guys would be surprised that for the next 20 and 30 years of her life, she began a spiral just because of that one comment to live her life up against that standard to continue to be that pretty little girl all the way into her 20s and 30s and 40s? I met a, I met a guy one time. I asked him about his family. He talked about a brother that he never talks to anymore. I said, you never talk to your brother? Yeah, he lives over here and so and so. I never talk. You don't talk at Christmas and things? No, I don't talk to him. I asked him why why that was. And he said, well, this one time I bought this jet ski. It was $5,000 and it was awesome. And we went to the lake and my brother crashed the jet ski. And I got on him like a dot, 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 like, and what happened next? And he's like, and that's it. I was done with that man. Over a jet ski? Oh yeah. He's not playing homeboy. Not today. I'm not getting punked like that. I'm not letting somebody crash my jet ski and still be my brother. I've met people who have gone through Divorces and affairs, just because of a simple seed thought, a mistress thought that said, I think I deserve someone better. You see, sin is not come to be your friend, it's come to be your Lord. And nobody's ever faced up against sin and become the master. It will come to you like a mistress and leave you as a master. It will master you. And so this is where we are in dire straits, is what Paul is saying, is because we are not just guilty of sin, we are trapped. Trapped in sin. Sin is not just a prison around me, but it is a poison that has crawled up inside of me. And sin is not just inside of me that I can work on it and fix it and get the five steps. No, it is over me and rules me like a principality and a prince. I am trapped and helpless and guilty in sin without Christ. That's the verdict. That's the ruling. We are wrong without Christ. And so finally, some good news. Anybody here just love a highlighter and just take their Bible out and just highlight the word but in the Bible? Not two T's, just one. You know when but is in the Bible, something's about, you ever read this but God? You know something good is going to happen in verse 21 that starts with but. Man, I'm ready for a but, Paul. It's been long three chapters here, and I'm ready for you to say something nice to me because you've been beating me up all day. But now, apart from the law, righteousness of God. Has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, says Paul, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference. There's no difference at all between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So the word that we'll focus on here that appears several times throughout the book but takes center stage in this run of passage is the word justify. Justify is a legal term that was associated in Rome with what would happen in a common court case with one guilty and one plaintiff and so forth. And Paul is saying that the righteousness from God came to man as a gift and not an earning. The way that a righteous God could be covenanted to somebody that's unrighteous is only through the giving of righteousness. And that giving of righteousness was not just given by good vibes and forgetfulness. It was paid for. It was atoned for. And the verdict of the court case that surrounded the cross is that anyone that believes in Jesus is justified freely. It means to be declared righteous. And that doesn't mean That somebody has earned that righteousness, it just means that they have been declared righteous in the sight of the court. They are going to be treated righteous and in right standing from henceforth when it comes to that court case. And so, what Paul is saying through the second word, which is atonement, it originates from the Levitical Code there, is that in atonement, the righteousness that comes to us is not earned but credited, it's given to us as a gift. And so justification means that the righteousness of Christ has been gifted to me as the wickedness of me is credited to Jesus. You see, in the trapping and the guilt of sin, we actually owed two people. We were in debt double-fold. We were actually in debt not only to the wrath of God, but we were in debt to the vagus of our sin. We needed, we, needed to pay, we needed somebody to pay for our wrath, but also to pay for our ransom. I mean, the prodigal son story is great, but you know what's even better? The gospel, because that says the father left the house and went and paid that dude's debts in Vegas to bring him back to the house. He justified his children through his son. Now, here's what's important. If I've got a group of kids in my class and I give them a group project to build a website, And those kids are dumber than a box of rocks. I mean, just couldn't string a sentence together, just super dumb. You've been here before, haven't you? And I go get the smartest kid and I go stick that smart kid in the middle of all those dumb kids, what's gonna happen to their grade? They're all getting the same grade. Isn't that what's horrible about group projects? great for the gospel, bad for education. Just Just my comments. It means the dumb kids will not only not do any work, but probably complain about the smart kid. The smart kid will come into the group, do all the work, and everybody gets the credit. Isn't that annoying? Let's say you had two people, a husband and a wife. And one of them has a lot of financial debt. Went to college, 100 grand. She marries a millionaire who's got great credit. That woman's got $900,000 in her pocket and some good credit. Let's say as a country, we got a bunch of sloppy, unathletic people in our country, but we got one super fast figure skater, and we send that chick to the Olympics And she shreds on Germany and Russia and everybody else and goes home and takes the gold medal. Who gets the gold medal? The United States of America. Now, here's what's important. Here's what's important. Because typically, this is the way that I've sometimes preach it and I I think about it and I talk about it this way. What the gospel is not is two separate credit cards just switching hands. There's not two accounts, right? A lot of times we think of, Christ is the vending machine. I want his righteousness, I want his future, and so I switch with him. He gets mine, he gets him, theirs. Which is which is not wrong, it's just a little incomplete. Because based on these metaphors, how many accounts are there? I'm not training accounts in the gospel, I'm joining an account. There's nothing in the gospel that ever says you are saved. Um, you are saved by faith through the righteousness that comes from Christ. Every time that Paul talks about it in Ephesians or Colossians, it's always what? It's you are saved by the righteousness that comes in Christ. I'm joining his family. So there's three implications to that. There's three reasons why that matters. Number one is, when I join into God's family, I don't just get heaven. I get all of his stuff. I cannot cannot enter into a justification that just means heaven's future. It means I get his family for better or worse. I get his spirit for better or worse. I get his mission and vocation for better or worse. I get his persecution for better or worse. I get his citizenship for better or worse. There's no such thing as switching credit cards between Jesus because it's all or none. I'm joining his account. I'm hidden in Christ, dying in a death like his to be raised in a life like his, in or out. That's the gospel. The second implication is, is it helps us make sense of the fact that two days after you became a Christian, you realized that Christ's death did not mean that he just got all the bad stuff and I just get all the good stuff because I'm still down here working and sweating it out down here, and so are you. And that's because God did not save us from around pain and suffering, but through it, you and me will still die, our earthly bodies. He's not saying I'm saving you from death ever. He's saying I'm resurrecting you through death, to live eternal life. That changes our expectation grid a lot. That matters a lot. Because if I've switched this, now all of a sudden I gave him my bad stupid credit card and my bad grade and my athletic genes, and I took all of his stuff, and I'm like, how come this stuff isn't as good as I thought that it was? My preacher told me everything's gonna be great. He didn't say you're gonna save around suffering and pain and hardship and all the stuff. He came down into your trench, which you caused all those problems, by the way, and he came down to lift you out of it. And so thirdly, another really important part of this whole justification thing is that if it's just that I switched credit cards, he just becomes that guilty conscience in the back of my head like he died for me. At least I should do something nice for him or I'm give somebody a cup of cold water. You know, like maybe I'll get around to it, right? Because he's kind of a super nice guy and he sacrificed and he suffered, so I should probably do that for my neighbor too. That's not what's working. We are sharing in, in his likeness. And so what has happened is is he's not a victim of justification. He's a victor. He's put me on his back and put me in the ark of himself, in Christ. And he's carrying my sorry butt through my life. He is carrying me down into the waters of baptism, symbolically, but also in my death, whenever it is I die. And he's not done working yet because he's going to raise me up again just the way that he did. And so we're not trading lives with Jesus. We're joining his life. We're joining his life and that's all free. There's nothing to be earned. There's nothing to be worked for. I'm simply sitting in the group and assigning myself with that smart kid. I'm sitting in my unrighteous group and the law says who will go before you as a sinless sufferer, a perfect one. Because if an unrighteous man dies for an unrighteous man, it's just a tragedy. But if a perfectly spotless lamb, a perfect righteous one were to become a servant on your behalf, to pay for your wrath and pay for your ransom, you'd be free and free indeed, and nothing could change that. Now, that's not exactly what he's harping on, but I need to get that out front because we're making our way through the whole book. But here's what I think he really wants you to pay attention to is down in verse 22. Here's how we're part of the group. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Messiah to all who believe, and there is no... Difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did anybody pay attention to how do we get into the group? This is what he wants us to care about. How do we get into the group? This is how we get into the group. Through, verse 22, this righteousness, faithfulness and justice is not earned but given through faith in, and I don't know what your Bible says, but every Bible I read this week, it's not only faith in Jesus, pay attention, it's faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, So I'm going to guess if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you might have had some hard knocks. Matter of fact, a lot of times in this life we'll have trouble. Following Jesus might mean more trouble for you. You might have run into some trouble. I'm going to guess that you've probably been either associated with or connected to a pastor that has not uh, lived up to the qualifications of the pastor and has fallen. Have you been there? And all of the triage that comes out of that of trying to separate the work of God and the work of man. And that's super flustering and floundering. And I bet you at some point in your, moment, in your moment of crisis, you might think, maybe I'm not gonna go back. Maybe none of this matters. I wonder if you've been in a scenario before where all the promises of God that Taylor was speaking about today may have come true for somebody at that time, but were not coming true of you in that moment. And you might've thought to yourself, I don't know if I'll ever go back. I wonder if there's been a time and season in your life that you have failed so utterly miserably, covered it up, lied about it, earned people's trust back, and then failed again. And you thought to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to go back. But yet, why are you still here? Are you here because you got grit? Is that why you're here? Because they don't have grit, and you have grit. Is this why we're here? Because we have faith. Are we saved by our faith? No, the faith that we have is the subject, not the object. The reason why you're here is not because of your faith, but the faithfulness of Jesus. Is there anything in the whole book of Genesis, in the, book, in the story of Jacob, that he did right at all? I mean, Abraham at least brought his son up the hill. Jacob sleeping with all of his different wives, getting everybody pregnant, knocking them up. All he ever did from the moment he was born, lie, cheat, and steal, but yet he still ends up at the foot of the cross because God chose him. Was he here because he had faith? Or was he here because somebody called him and named him that had faithfulness? Was he there because he was righteous or because somebody gave him righteousness that wasn't revealed? It It was hidden until it was revealed in the cross. This is what he's saying, is that we are accessing this thing not through what we're doing and through our work, but through the faithfulness of God. And so we have faith in that faithfulness. And so this is really where he's headed with this thing because, again, this is not a textbook. This is a pastoral letter. And this is what he really wants to talk about. This is what he's, he's spending all this time. You think, why did you just cut to the chase? And it's because we're knuckleheads. And, we, and, and, and a good friend will tell you, a good friend will build you up, but a great friend will break you down so you can really get it. And so this is what verse 27, this is why, one of the reasons why Paul is doing such hard work to write this whole letter to 150 people in this church. He cares about it this much. 27, because of boasting, man. Like, I want to talk to you about the gospel because of your boasting. The Jews and the Gentiles were utterly divided. The Jews had been sent out by diaspora by a previous Roman Empire, and then when they were let back in, they found all these Gentiles, and they were doing all of the things they wanted to do, and they're boasting in their freedom, and they we're great because we're free and we do what we want, we're free from we the law. And the Jews are coming back, it's like, what are you doing? It's like God into lawlessness. He's faithful. Come on, you got to follow God and do what you're supposed to do. And they were boasting, they were bickering, like God's people are always doing, by the way. Cain and Abel. Ishmael, all these people, always boasting, always proving why they're better, always proving why they're righteous, why they're right and the other one's guilty. Where's boasting? Where did all that go from these last, I don't see boasting anywhere in that. There is no boasting in the kid that trusts for that figure skater to go out and win a gold medal. There's no boasting in that. There's trusting. There's boasting in the Savior, but there's not boasting in me. Where's boasting? It's excluded. You could have You could have homeless, you could have tall, short, you could have rich, poor, you could have all sorts of types of people, but one thing you can't have is boasting. Boasting is checked at the front door. There is no boasting in the gospel, it is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? Nah. Because the law that requires faith, not faith in yourself, faith in the one that's faithful, the champion of our faith, the one that ran with endurance the one that won victory for us, the one who we are inside like an ark, safe from every other impenetrable thing, every other evil around us. We are safe in him. And that faith, that's the thing that gets us saved. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jew only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. We uphold it. And so, the pastoral application between the theological treatise here is to not just get the gospel into the church, but it's to get the gospel into our homes and into our hearts. And it's to see that real justification is unification. That the religion of our world always comes to divide us, but the gospel will always unite us. Because all have fallen short, all are under the power of sin, All have fallen short to the understanding punishable by death. And all and only those that will call on the name of the Lord will be justified justified through faith. And so a good friend is a really good friend because they'll build you up, but a great friend will break you down. It'll bring you to the place where you can actually access the righteousness of God by realizing the wickedness of self. And a great friend will stick with you that long to do that. And love you enough to offend you, so that you might receive and inherit eternal life, to receive the gospel. And so, what Paul is really doing here is he's trying to explain what Christ's righteousness is like, because he knows that a bickering and divided church is only founded on self righteousness. You see, Jew and Gentile is not really a big, radical, relevant debate right now. Like it's not, I don't say the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Like, yeah, I'm for the pro-Jews and I'm the pro-Jews. Like nobody's fighting about that anymore. That's not like the relevant topic. We have other relevant topics. Because it's not really about Jew and Gentile. It is about Adam and Eve. It's about, I need to prove your guilt in our fights so I can prove my innocence. In any place we see a divided church, we know that there's been boasting family members, right? And anywhere there is boasting, we know there is self-righteousness and not Christ's righteousness So here's just a list of things. A guy named, I think, Curtis Carr, or Chris Carr, maybe, from Upstate Church Collective read off to us, and and it just kind of sunk home for me. But apart from Jewish righteousness, there's also something called job righteousness. I'm a hard and honest worker, so God will reward me. And I'm righteous, and you're not. There's such a thing as family righteousness. Because I do things right, as a sibling, child, or parent, I have a good family and I'm righteous. And you don't. There's theological righteousness. I have good theology and articulate it and explain it well because I'm right. God prefers me over those with bad theology. You didn't quite get that theology right. You kind of missed that point. Church righteousness. I go to a good church that gets it right, certainly one that is better than most others. And I know. So I get to look down on them because I can be passive aggressive and pity those. Less righteous churchgoers at the church across the street. God agrees with me and not them. There's intellectual righteousness. I am better because I read more and I'm articulate and I'm culturally savvy than others. And I know stuff and I have the newest statistics or whatever. That obviously makes me superior. There's scheduled and organized righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time and management. and I'm organized and come and follow me and I will show you the ways of my Righteousness which makes me more mature than others. And my, my, my life verse is, God blesses those who are disciplined over those who are undisciplined. <laughs> Finally, somebody said it. Amen, brother. The first will be first. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy and slaves to their schedule, I'm flexible and relaxed and always make time for others. And I'm like Jesus because I'm relaxed. Shame on those busy people. I'm mercy and justice righteous. I care about the poor, not like you. Those disadvantaged people, I help them. And not only that, I stand up for them. And I have a special place in Jesus' heart because I'm justice righteous. I'm legalist righteous because I'm concerned about holiness and and I'm concerned more than most people that I know. And I'm even one of the elite people who meets the qualifications for vocational ministry because I'm a pastor and I'm a shepherd and I'm a deacon and I'm an elder. I'm financially righteous because I manage my money right, and you don't manage your money right, and so I must be righteous, and so when I get in a fight, I can prove my righteousness against your guilt. I'm politically righteous, you know, I'm right, and so you're wrong, and so I'm left, and so you're wrong, or I'm a moderate guy, and I don't really choose which side, because I'm the really right one. Jesus would have been purple. I'm tolerance righteous. I open my mind. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me, because I'm just like Jesus. I have Protestant uh, penance. No one feels worse about their sin and failures than I do. I've got guilt and shame, and when I Open up the small group. I'm the first to throw the stick in the fire. I'm worship righteous because all I want to do is worship. And I raise my hands higher and I sing my song louder and I bow down lower and I sing even louder and I cry. So I must be righteous. You see, a good friend is a great friend because they'll break you down to build you up and finally allow you to accept that place that if I'm wrong, then righteous isn't something that I need to go get. Righteous is something that has come and found. And my my righteousness, my self-righteousness will always cause division and strife and bitterness and envy and fighting and gossiping, but his righteousness will find rest in me. And so, um, man, I just need to make this last point. Uh, And we have communion. But um, I was listening to the old Bible project uh, over the week and they had a really funny (laughs) little thing in there in the last one about Jacob, the guy I was talking to you about. Uh, eventually turned his name into Israel. And uh, I preached about it one time. I remember we're in Genesis, we worked through it and it was a long one, just about all the rascal things that that dude did. I mean, he was called the deceiver from the day that he was born. And he was grabbing onto the heel. And what they were talking about is really funny, ironic thing, right? It's because the minute that Jacob was ever in the womb, God told them that he was blessed. He didn't have to do anything. He was already blessed. Like there are two people in the womb and there's an older brother and a younger brother, and everybody expects the older ones, but I'm blessing the younger one. He's already got my blessing. And from the minute that dude gets out the womb, he's grabbing onto his brother's ankle and putting on Chewbacca costumes and sleeping around with everybody that he can get his hands on to try and go get the blessing that he already had. And so then, by the final end of the thing, God wrestles him down and says, are you done yet? You ever have a kid that's just having a tantrum you just wanna put him to sleep? Just hit him in the boop, just put him to sleep. Like, are you done fighting for, I'm trying to help you, dude. I'm not trying to fight. You're fighting for the thing I'm trying to give you, right? This is what's funny. You ready for this? So apparently this wrestling judo match between God and Jacob, God ends up winning in a way of calling this guy Israel. And he doesn't, this is Tim Mackey, so take it up with him. uh, Doesn't hit him in the hip, you ready? Hits him in the crotch, You hear that? God's grace hit Jacob in the crotch. (laughs) Because that's the place where the blessing was supposed to come, and he'd spent his whole life trying to make his own blessing, and he's got to actually help him by hurting him to get him to finally receive the blessing, not on his own terms. You know, you ever offer somebody to pay for their gas, and they won't take the gift? That's us for 40 years or however long we want. He is trying to give us a blessing while we're fighting him. And he changes his name from the one who fights God to essentially the one that God fights for. And so this is my intentional question as we go. Who are you fighting? Because I'm saying if you get in a little tiff with somebody, everybody gets in fights. There's no, there's no, it's not bad to have good, healthy conversations and debate and discussion. But we know a fight from a fight. A fight where it's longer and louder and last word and lawyers and verdicts, and it's like, where are you fighting? It's probably something that's really the same subject in those five different areas, and somehow you still think that in the court of public opinion, five to one, you're still right. It's just the way that we do things around here. And I want you to consider the fact that as you're fighting with these people, you might actually not be fighting with people, but you might be fighting with God. And then in fact, that as God is fighting with you, he's not fighting against you, he's actually fighting for you. You are your worst enemy, and he is your best friend. And God's grace will kick you in the crotch and send you a hard, hard word sometimes, hard circumstances, a hard spouse that maybe isn't all the way right either, but doesn't give you permission to earn your innocence against their guilt, that you might finally lay down and get his blessing. That we might finally accept our unrighteousness, that the gift of righteousness might come to us fully. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.